You're listening to the 18th and final episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast season was about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly it was about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. Like the other seasons, it was also about depression, words, and music. Each episode was me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected, left on the shelf. Thank you for listening to this podcast season like one watches a series of car accidents, which is the image that comes most readily to mind when looking back at my own romantic history. Episode 18, I Live Alone. So now we've arrived at the final episode of this season of the podcast. I may do another season, haven't really made my mind up yet. Random stuff I tripped over to think about this week. I heard Andrew Doyle, creator of the satirical social activist Twitter character Titania McGrath, quoting W.H. Auden on Coleman Hughes's podcast today, saying that the difference between satire, which is what Doyle does and also what I got kicked out of my Christian group for writing, and other forms of comedy, is that satire, being an attempt to communicate and be understood, is optimistic about change and points being gotten across, while most comedy is pessimistic and is resigned to the way things are, and simply laughing with a bunch of friends who see things your way at the way things are, and which you think are likely to stay like that. And I think that's true. I think Andrew's right. Where comedy contents itself with, we're all smart. Those guys are dumb. Ha ha. Satire says something more like, you know what's going on over there? Here is a slightly exaggerated version of what's happening so we can look at it more clearly. See what I mean? Titania McGrath, quote unquote, tweets things about how she thinks fishing perpetuates white supremacy or daylight savings time is transphobic or mathematics was the master's tools that made slavery possible and very, very, very often legitimate non-satirical sources like CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times will then either sincerely or click-hungrily cynically publish a similar or identical opinion only a few months later. Andrew has a collection of the number of times this has happened. As for me, back in the day, I was trying to shine a light on how out of touch we brethren folks were with all of those lost souls we were trying to save, all of those young people we were supposedly wanting to keep coming out to meeting with us. Our outreach pamphlets were embarrassing. I was genuinely hoping for conversations for a chance to talk to power in our group about the implausibility and impossibility and unworkability of our worldview and our approach to things ever working in practical terms for so many of us. I was hoping for something other than, yeah, we know, now shut up. We're going to fight to keep it like this too, even if it means getting rid of a whole bunch of you. Listening to a recorded interview with Hannah Arendt, a philosopher who fled Nazi Germany, my students and I heard Arendt talk about how she asked to meet a Nazi back in the day. And she met Adolf Eichmann, who sat at desks and drew up the schedules and plans and blueprints for the extermination of the Jewish people of Europe. And Arendt said that he wasn't what she expected at all. Now, 
What she said that struck me is ringing very true about the various people I've spoken to after Trump, after COVID, after Black Lives Matter, after America invading Iraq because of supposed weapons of mass destruction, after defund the police, after our various Plymouth Brethren Church divisions, incredibly community-destroying and manifestly carried out by cynical men for cynical power-based reasons, was this. Hannah Arendt said that the Nazi war criminals didn't demonstrate any remorse at all or understanding of what had really happened in human terms, and their part in or support of any of it. But they also didn't demonstrate any really strong fanatical belief in Nazism or anti-Semitism or pro-Hitler sentiment or any of that either. They were neither cold nor hot or on any side of the issues— Arendt said that they were just people who had wanted to be able to say we. When asked about themselves and their own feelings, actions, decisions, and positions on any of the really important stuff that they had just been part of, stuff that was going down in human history, they just kind of shrugged. They had nothing as individuals. They'd been fueled by the we. Without it, they didn't really factor. There were no I or me conversations to be had at all. In each case, all the Nazis could say was I was doing what we were supposed to do. And Arendt said that although the Nazis she encountered were in many ways intelligent, in other ways, working as a group, they were stupid, in particular, stupid about how people work. One example of the kind of stupidity Hannah Arendt cited from her own experiences before fleeing Germany was when Russian prisoners of war starved most of the way to death escaped they would be found sneaking into German farms and stealing slop from the pig troughs. The comment she cited Germans making that regardless of how smart or stupid they were in other ways was, you see, they are no better than pigs. They even eat the same food. Underlying this stupid comment, Arendt felt, was the assumption, I would never do that. I am better than that. And this was, she said, stupid, because when starving to death, anyone would do that. So the comment was a willful attempt to function as the kind of stupid that doesn't feel, doesn't understand, doesn't know what's going on with people who are, more than you want to consider, just like you. I have spoken with so many people who are fanatics in the moment of a fad cause movement thingy and see how, in the words of Jung, they don't have an idea, the idea has them. By the nuts, they are fueled by it, and they have no remorse for anyone who isn't we. They function to a stupid degree as people who don't get it, who don't get that there are more than two sides to everything and people often need each other, and that vilifying regular people in order to live how you want makes you a villain. COVID happened, whatever it was or wasn't, and what was needed was a coming together of people, a telling of truth, a setting aside of ideological and political point scoring, a working together, and a keeping our society together. And that definitely didn't happen. And the scars of that dividedness and biting and devouring of our own people, they're not gone. They aren't really healed, and they're currently being added to because we just keep doing this. The song in this episode was discovered by kids at the school where I teach due to a video I made of it on YouTube years ago. As a result, on occasion, a random kid or other who I don't know has sung, I live alone, down the hall at me, it never being clear if they are making fun of me, if they are showing appreciation that I have a song, or thinking it's cool or odd or embarrassing or dumb or what. A colleague did tease me for admitting the shameful truth that I live alone. 
What could be more shameful than having no one at home? Imagine my disappointment to not have a litter of kids shitting everywhere and calling me lame and listening to terrible, terrible music and seeing how many abortions they can require before age 20. This was just a joke song, but people seemed to like it more than almost any of my serious stuff. Growing up in the 70s, there were many comedic country songs on the radio, such as Oh Lord, It's Hard to Be Humble. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble When you're perfect in every way I can't wait to look in the mirror Cause I get better looking each day To know me is to love me must be one hell of a man Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble But I'm doing the best that I can I guess you could say I'm a loner A cowboy outlaw, tough and brown I could have lots of friends if I wanna But then I wouldn't stand out in the crowd some folks say that I'm egotistical Hell, I don't even know what that means I guess it has something to do with the way That I fill out my skin-tight blue jeans And I guess this song might be a bit in the vein of that. It's one of those quirky ones that comes into one's head floating across one's frontal lobes, and if one takes the time to grab hold of it as it floats by and try it out on paper and or a guitar, it stays. You see, I came back home from work one day, I ran up the stairs to the apartment where I was living, came in the door, and the lines, I came back home, ran up the stairs, came into my head as I shut the door. Then, and I sang three songs, to a girl who wasn't there, came into my head. But instead of singing three songs by other people, I let this one write itself there in my head. I lay on the couch and waited. And the next bit ended up being, lay on the couch, which I had all to my own. Then I thought, what's that you say? Well, I live alone, I live alone. So I recorded it with my old gear before I forgot it. Two former students, Evan, who drums for me when I'm not, like, on this song, ill-advisedly playing drums myself, and a student I knew as Cole, who studies music at school and is now known as Emma, sent me a jokey take on this song of mine, with Evan trying to imitate my singing voice. I came back home, ran up the stairs, and I sang three songs for a girl who wasn't there, lay on the couch, which I had on. Emily mustered up the courage to ask me if I really was content to live alone. You cat peed on your bed. That's just very unfortunate, isn't it? I've got a question, and I'd like an honest answer. Um, you've made a song about living alone, and I just want to ask you, do you like living on your own? Evan weighed in. Is it obvious to you that single, we'll say single adults, 
are on average less happy than people in couples? I'm a single adult, so I have to say resoundingly yes, except okay. for, it, it, it depends. So if you're a single adult and you learn how to live it and do your best with it, I think it's livable, but not ideal. If okay. you're in an average marriage, I think you're better on average than your okay. average single person. If you're in a bad marriage, I think you're definitely worse than your average single person. I think if you're an exceptionally well-adjusted single person, I think there's a whole positive component that you're just not getting, like that that some marriages would have. I do think right. that. Right. Like I'm breaking this down in my head too. You know, there's a couple of married couples and obviously they're thriving in the same way. There's a few single people who are just they can't imagine their life any better than it is now. Like, let's let's get rid of the ends of these distributions. We're you know, just talking about the middle is the average married couple happy. I mean, that's a tough question. And it's a tough question, especially if you think about I know in Canada, the stat for divorce is about 50 percent, which means we're, we're sort of right on that border right between. I would complicate um, that by saying that just because people, because people comparatively uh, mm -hmm. in the, in the context of history, divorce so casually in the same way that they had sex so casually, mm -hmm. we can't assume that people got a divorce because they were outright miserable. Um, sometimes Fair. people are just getting a divorce because they don't see the point of the marriage. It just doesn't seem to be as happy. It's just sort of nothing. People get yeah. divorced because they're bored. People get divorced uh, and, well, and they'll people, say unhappy, right? I'm unhappy. Yeah. But and we're all supposed to go, oh, okay, well, then you should get divorced then because you're unhappy. And by unhappy, they just, they don't mean that they're filled with sorrow and grief and panic. They just mean I'm not feeling what I had been promised. It's not as advertised. I want an upgrade. So there's I want an upgrade divorces. I mean, that makes me sad. Yeah. <laughs> of, of all the things we talk about, that's the one. When Emily asks about me and my being single, she's really trying to work out if Steve, who she loves, could really be happy without a woman like her in his life. I'm kind of her fill-in reference for what brethren men are like. And I noticed like all of the questions or topics that we were talking about today were based on a lot of your experiences and stuff like that. But... Is there part of you that actually, I don't, I suppose I'm trying to get into the mindset of maybe how Steve might be thinking. He literally just does everything on his own. He lives on his own. He obviously stayed with me for a couple of months for a while, which was great because I wanted him around, which it got intense pretty quickly, whereas that was probably a bad idea, but... Is there part of like brethren men that like living on their own and there's part of them that thinks, you know, what if I live on my own and don't share anything with anyone and I'll do it all myself, I can't get hurt and then I can't be exposed to any of the problems of the world, as it were? Because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, obviously, you live on your own and you spoke about, you know, girlfriends and friends that you wanted to have them into girlfriends that haven't transpired into girlfriends. And, I, and I'm going to put an assumption that you're not okay with it and you would like to meet someone and share a life. Or is that not the case and you'll just quite happily be on your own forever? Steve says to me that, he, what did he say? He said that 
it's like he's very contradictory. He's like, I don't want to be on my own, but I, I, it's almost like, I think it, what he was probably trying to say is he's comfortable being in his own company, but he doesn't want to always be on his own. Like, I think there's part of him that does want to settle and have that loving relationship and stuff moving forward. Is that the same case for you? Since the recording of this interview, Steve and Emily did get back together. Susan Isaacs had this to say. What am I going to do with the life that I have been given and how can I make it full and um, find happiness in it? My husband's seven years older than me and, you know, there's a good chance he'll pass before I do. What am I going to do with myself after he's gone? Um, my friend who's, who's, you know, I don't think she's going to find somebody at this stage and she's thinking about that. So one of my closest friends, she's 85 and she's been a widow for 10 years now. And she's just going like gangbusters. She's, you know, developing shows for television and she's on the board of a theater. You know, she has a very full and happy life and she's Jewish so she was built with a sense of community, a great sense of community, and she's a joiner. Um, I mean, I want to be like her in that mm. respect, you know? I don't have that. So I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm always alone, but mm. I don't have that. And so I'm in the awkward position of needing a lot of time alone, but only having time alone. So that's uh, it's mm-hmm. a bit of a trap there. When, when you're by yourself all the time, sometimes you can get locked in your own thoughts yes. over and over, right? You're running on, you're, you're running a treadmill. You need something external to shake it up a bit. Yeah. They figured this out, right? There was some social science experiment about, you know, if you keep people away from other people, it's not good. It's not even good for their own physical development. Like, it's yes. that serious. Like, we, we, yeah. we need each other that badly. But feral children who are discovered, who are in a forest, there's a bunch of things that don't develop. Yeah. And and I, I suppose that I run the risk living in a forest with a bunch of animals of of losing <laughs> things that I had been better at. It makes you wonder how weird can you get living in the forest? I mean, that's a stereotypical character in a, in a show, a TV show is what, what I run the risk of being is the episode of Northern Exposure or Doc Martin or whatever, where the guy that's been living by himself in the woods for six months comes out and how friggin' weird he is now. Right. Joanna agrees that animals really can be a comfort for people who live alone. I live alone most of the time, as well as work a full-time job from home. I think it's great, it's quiet, and I have the liberty to manage my time how I want to. But I am an introvert, so I'm sure this lifestyle would not suit everyone the same way that it suits me. I own a farm with about 50 animals on it. Um, I think animals are great because they need you and they're always glad to see you, but you can always decide when the visiting time is over. Uh, You never have to worry about social mores or politeness rituals. However, you cannot have any kind of philosophical discussion with them unless you want it to be completely one-sided. I do think animals bring a kind of calm and groundedness to your life. And I think a lot of the modern world has lost this. Um, And I honestly believe I probably would have been in therapy long before now had I not gotten into animal husbandry. Animals never lie, but they're a lot like children who will never grow up. Well, I think what Bonhoeffer talked about, like in a community, it's like the person who doesn't like being in groups really needs to be. And the people who don't like to be alone really should be alone. I mean, look at Kim Kardashian and Jennifer Lopez. They cannot be alone. I don't know that they've ever been without eye candy, 
whether it's a boyfriend or a husband, or people who may seem like they're really great in groups, but those often that is um, a way of avoiding being alone and dealing with your own thoughts. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, no one gets away with it. Like what, what is the point of going and, and, and getting married? Because to us, it, we're, we're pretty quick to say, well, I'm swearing my love and devotion to someone before God, a pretty literal God, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in our belief system. And like, I'm taking vows, <laughs> right? Like, so I, it's, it's confusing to me because everyone still wants to get, oh, not, I don't want to say everyone, but almost everyone wants to get married still. Get married. Outsider's perspective, I'm neither married nor an atheist or raised mm-hmm. that way. So I'm pretty outside the question. But the way it looks, <laughs> the way that it looks to me is it looks like they're saying, well, we're already having sex. We're already living in the same apartment. We already mm-hmm. are going to be very jealous and very upset if anyone cheats. So let's formalize it. That That's my take on what most people think they're doing is is it's what they want. They want to live together. They want to share the bills. They want to have sex and they don't want cheating. And so they, they're almost looking to say, well, let's promise to continue doing what we think is working so well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound very romantic, but. Uh, well, I, I know, but well, I, on the other hand, like it doesn't seem totally nonsense either. No. Right. Like we're, we're going to, we're going to have a formal ceremony and in front of our friends, we're going to declare that we're taking this seriously. We're not backing it on anything. Like we're we're not swearing it before God. But if they, if you don't believe in God anyway, it's not like you could do that. The elephant in the room in Christian circles mm-hmm. is that the two things that Christians apparently care about more than anything else are marriage, kids, and money, job, you know, that house, car, all that. And if you would like to take the Old or New Testament and use it to prop up a very big focus on children and marriage and sex and money and cars and jobs. It works completely counter to that. In fact, Mm -hmm. Michael Vetter, who actually competed with me for the same first girlfriend and has known me ever since had this to say about my various attempts to start relationships throughout my life. I think um, in every case you've done the same thing and you've laid your heart out and described, you know, who you were, this is what you're looking for in real terms. And then I've also done something creative for each, every single relationship you've ever started. You've done something creative for the other person and it's been received with joy initially. And then, like you said, um, in most cases, the, the cloud of cares and the weeds have choked the seed. Yes. (laughs) He planted a seed, not literally now. Um, and, the thorns grew up and choked him and sometimes it fell on stony ground and sometimes there's a few of those uh that's really fascinating uh what was the other one the uh the birds of the air birds of the air. And, and the, the birds of the air i think you're talking about people in the culture that yes, r- relatives and the, the the church folk and them all interfering yeah now, I mean, that um, was attempted with you and that was attempted with Mark and Wendy and so on that they tried to have relationships and the culture tried to interfere. We were talking about the uh, how you you have laid your heart on the line. And I think like I was talking about you in glowing terms before that you always have a good motive at heart. And I think that might have been a little bit I shouldn't use superlatives because there's times when the the bitterness of unrequited love comes in and makes you say or do things that are a little more cutty than they had to be. Uh, but it's usually 
for in, it, in podcast in, episodes, you mean? No, I haven't seen it in the podcast episodes. You've been a saint in, in um, songs or in in conversation or when was I? Or it just there's sometimes a bitterness over the unrequited love, and it's that, or even just unrecognized. Like, would you grant me um, that maybe it's frustration rather than bitterness? We, I would grant you that. I would grant you that. Because bitterness is a brethren loaded word that means I've sinned by so feeling. No, I think I think I express frustration in song, and I think punk's good for that. That's true. When I was in bands with Troy and we practiced at his dad's house, they had a very wise old cat named Floyd, named for Pink Floyd. If you sat at the kitchen table and talked, as we often did, Floyd would get up on a chair and sit with his head and shoulders showing over the edge of the table, turning his head back and forth as each person spoke, as if following every word of the conversation. So when I rescued a tiny black kitten from my grandpa's basement before my uncle and cousin played kitten skeet shooting with a bag of them and a pair of shotguns, I named him Sid. Sid for Sid Barrett, who started and named Pink Floyd, then went crazy. Sid Barrett is the crazy diamond that Dave Gilmore and Roger Waters of Pink Floyd sing about and shine on you crazy diamond. He's who they wish you were here. How wish, how wish you were here. We're just two lost souls living in a fishbowl. Who found the band you're in starts playing different tunes, who they intend to see on the dark side of the moon. And if the band you're in starts playing different tunes, I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. Thank you, Chris. Sid the cat version grew from a tiny, fuzzy black kitten to be an enormous black panther of a house cat. He was very much an indoor cat and never really enjoyed going outside, though I tried to entice him, and he wouldn't hunt anything, even if a mouse ran right by him. I put a frog on his head one time to see if he'd try to hunt it, and he ignored it completely. He was very affectionate and loved to play fetch for long periods of time, but he had an annoying habit of taking his revenge on me when I did things he didn't approve of, Things like going on a vacation or rearranging furniture or being home on a day I was normally at work or coming home late from work by peeing on things, usually my futon, which I fitted with a new mattress and a waterproof cover. One time, Sid the cat peed in a suitcase I was packing as he knew I was doing something he didn't understand. And one time, he climbed up on the bed just as I was taking a nap at an odd time he wasn't expecting and peed on my feet. Your cat peed on your bed. That's just very unfortunate, isn't it? This happened rarely enough, and I got him mostly trained to stop doing it, that I was heartbroken when a genetic heart defect meant Sid had to be put down at age seven. But this song was written before then, so Sid's mentioned, and is a favorite part of it for people who like this song. Sid trained me that he liked to not only fetch like a dog, but speak like a dog as well, which he would do whenever you said hello to him. No matter where he was in the apartment, even in a different room, if he said hello, Sid would answer over and over again. It's something he seemed to like doing. Hello? What would you like? Hello? 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 Experts say 
that cats, apart from growls and hisses, are relatively unvocal with each other. And so when cats meow at us, either they're imitating the fact that we use our voices to talk to them, or maybe it's that they're recreating that moment when they were a kitten with their mother and they would give those little mews to tell their mother that they were hungry or whatever. The video, shot in an entirely different apartment than the one I lived with Sid the Cat, features my next big black cat named Roger, after Roger Waters of Pink Floyd, of course. And Roger never peed on anything he shouldn't have and was a real sweetie. So I was heartbroken when a mysterious illness no amount of stays overnight at the vets nor a thousand dollars spent on him could get to the bottom of, and he had to be put down at age 10. But Roger, quite innocent of the accusation of peeing on things, fills in for Sid in the YouTube video, being a big black cat who was quite happy to get up on the bed with me for the video and act his part, minus the peeing bit. Now, I have a big black cat named Mason, after Nick Mason of Pink Floyd, of course. It was either that or Gilmore, after Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd. As a person who lives alone, I always have to take my pets to the vet to help them live longer or to say goodbye, completely on my own, and go home alone afterward, where I get to stay there alone, with a place empty of cat, but filled with cat things. So though a woman and I were at that point not talking once again, she called me before and after my having to say goodbye to Roger, my going to the vet with him in my arms, and my driving home without him in my arms, and she talked to me on my phone to get me through this event, just like I talked her months later through having to pay to get a beloved pet of hers put down as well. And I asked her, talking on the phone months after that, when we were definitely not talking, whether Mason or Gilmore was a better name for a cat, and she immediately said that Mason was a much better name. My dad, who is pretty deaf and won't wear his hearing aids just to talk to people like us, calls my cat Nathan when he's over, and Mason doesn't mind a bit, so long as he gets his back scratched and gets tossed scraps of pepperoni from people's pizza. If you sit in a chair and he disapproves of you sitting in it, though, he will walk straight up to you and hiss in your face to express his disapproval. Unlike either of the previous two cats, Mason kills every mouse and occasionally a garter snake that sneaks into my house. Both times a big squirrel got in, and the several times that George brought over his dog Rascal, or Rascal's daughter Sam, Mason didn't try to kill them, but shadowed them everywhere they went to make sure they weren't up to mischief. The weird part about the red and the gray squirrels was I didn't see how they got into the house, possibly down the chimney, nor did I see how they got out again. They were just gone, but they knew they couldn't wander the place unescorted by a cat with vicious claws and teeth, and I never saw them in there again. As to moles, voles, field, and deer mice, Mason normally climbs up into the attic crawl space or tears down into the basement upon hearing scurrying sounds and gallops into the living room, excitedly with the creature squeaking in his teeth, then does things like drop it into the bathtub or the recycle bin so he can smack it around in there like he's playing ping pong. Once the creature is too stunned to move around much, Mason brings it into the kitchen and tosses it around in there a bit to see if he can get any more life out of it. Failing that, he loudly crunches it down like a carrot. He quite often leaves a face or a tail in the middle of the floor. Sometimes the entire upper half of the creature is there when I wake up in the morning. Johan from work helped me plug up the gap from my house's foundation, which hopefully was where most of the wildlife had been getting in. In any case, Mason has real trouble catching invading creatures more than maybe once a month now, and they exclusively seem to be coming from the attic, not the basement. 
Though he has grown to enormous size, Mason often continues his kittenly habit of leaping into the dishwasher, fridge, or clothes dryer as soon as they are opened and needing to be protestingly pulled out of there and curling up with or on me whenever I sleep. When I come home from work, Mason runs to me and wants to be picked up so he can lick my face. The writer's strike is on, and everyone seems to be doing it, getting ChatGPT to write things for them, so I tried it out. Given the task, script a podcast episode about a sour recluse who lives in the woods, reminiscing about his fundamentalist Christian upbringing and songs he wrote 20 years ago about women who dumped him, ChatGPT came up with this upcoming podcast script for this podcast with me inserting a ChatGPT-generated sponsor shout-out and writing a four-chord pop song tune to go with a ChatGPT-generated sour recluse living in the woods song lyric. It's all about what keywords are used with ChatGPT. What you hear as a result isn't an artificial intelligence writing anything, but rather the equivalent of a computer being asked to generate a simulated sequel to Hamlet, given all of Shakespeare's plays to edit together into a Shakespeare collage to make it, or a computer image of a simulated oil painting by Leonardo da Vinci, given scans of all the paintings by Leonardo da Vinci. The program isn't trying to communicate any ideas at all. It has no ideas. But it can Google keywords and edit bits of the internet together in a way that looks almost human, like combining the features of a million pictures of human faces into a single graphic of a composite human face. Not quite the same thing as giving birth to a human being who carries your genes in it on its little human face. As Neil Gaiman tweeted, ChatGPT doesn't give you information. It gives you information-shaped sentences. So for my podcast and others I tried typing in a description of, what AI is really trying to do is use the description of a thing to create something that would fit the same exact description as that thing with no real idea, of course, of the purpose or effect of that thing, or certainly what the creator might be trying to say with it. Pretty sure some parallel with how I was raised can be drawn here, with us being required to grow up closely imitating the superficials of the dress, deportment, talk, and lifestyles of the older people who were themselves imitating the superficials of those who passed these on and then passed on themselves years ago. People who thought being a Christian was to live in such a way that you could be described in exactly the same way that people who you thought were Christians would be described. Form, serving no particular function. People arguing about, and in fact getting punished, for how things appeared, not what they were or their actual result. The Bible talks about Christian communities who have a form or appearance of godliness, but who deny or block out the power of it. Now we've got artificial intelligence. I grew up with artificial spirituality. Anyway, I present ChatGPT trying to be me, with admittedly some rather absurd prompts typed into it by me to drive it. Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of Uncharted Tales. Today we delve into the mysterious life of a sour recluse who resides deep within the woods. Join us as we unravel the story of his fundamentalist Christian upbringing, the haunting memories that linger, and the songs he wrote two decades ago about lost love. (music) 
Remember to subscribe to Uncharted Tales for special offers and write a glowing review that will help us keep churning out quality content for your ear holes. Before we dive into this week's episode, though, let's hear from our exciting sponsor, Hedge Clipper Tundra, the ultimate gasoline-powered men's personal pubic hair grooming power tool. That's right, folks. When it comes to keeping your downstairs garden neat and well-manicured, Hedge Clipper Tundra is here to revolutionize your grooming routine. Absolutely, Alex. I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right tools for the job, and Hedge Clipper Tundra delivers on all fronts. This power tool is designed specifically for the modern man who takes pride in his grooming habits. Exactly, Jet. The Hedge Clipper Tundra combines cutting-edge technology with the power and precision of a gasoline engine to ensure a smooth and effortless grooming experience. Say goodbye to tugging, pulling, and the frustration of using subpar gasoline-powered personal hygiene tools. And let's not forget the versatility of this remarkable device. With adjustable trimming lengths and a range of cutting attachments, you can customize your grooming style with ease. Whether you're going for a clean shave or a neatly trimmed look, Hedge Clipper Tundra has got you covered, so to speak. Absolutely, Jet. And what's truly remarkable is the durability of this power tool. With its rugged construction and high-quality materials, Hedge Clipper Tundra is built to last. No more worrying about flimsy trimmers that break after only a few uses. And as if the power and performance wasn't enough, Hedge Clipper Tundra is also ergonomically designed for maximum comfort and control. The non-slip grip ensures a steady hand, allowing for precise grooming even in those hard-to-reach areas. Well, that's right, Chet. Hedge Clipper Tundra truly understands the needs of the modern man when it comes to personal grooming. And here's the best part. Our listeners can get an exclusive discount on the Hedge Clipper Tundra by visiting their website and using the promo code UNCHARTEDTALES at checkout. That's an incredible offer, Alex. So all our listeners out there, make sure to take advantage of this opportunity to elevate your grooming game with Hedge Clipper Tundra. Trust us, you won't be disappointed. Absolutely, Chet. And we want to extend a big thank you to Hedge Clipper Tundra for supporting our podcast. Remember, when it comes to personal grooming, Hedge Clipper Tundra is the name you can trust. That's right, Alex. Thanks again to Hedge Clipper Tundra for their sponsorship, and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Stay groomed and stay tuned for this episode of Uncharted Tales. Episode 37, The Sour Recluse's Melancholy Melodies. Our journey begins on a foggy morning, where the sun struggles to pierce through the dense canopy. In a secluded cabin, hidden away from the world, we find our sour recluse. Let's call him Ethan, though his name is Steve. With a tinge of sadness in his eyes, he begins to reminisce about his past. I was raised in a small, tight-knit community that embraced fundamentalist Christian values. It was a world of strict rules where everything was black and white. The woods, they became my refuge, my escape from the rigid confines of suffocating dogma. How did this upbringing shape your view of the world, Ethan? It left me feeling bitter, disillusioned, and unable to fit in with the outside world. The weight of those expectations crushed my spirit, and I found solace in penning songs that mirrored my inner turmoil. As we leaf through the pages of Ethan's songbook, we uncover lyrics filled with longing, heartbreak, and the echoes of women who left him behind. These songs became his emotional outlet, capturing his pain, but also holding a glimmer of hope. Those songs were my way of grappling with rejection, lost love, and the fear of being alone. 
Each melody carried the sting of unrequited affection and the desperation to be seen and understood. Could you share some of those songs with us, Ethan? Of course. Here's one called Faded Dreams. It speaks of a love that slipped through my fingers, literally leaving behind only faded dreams. The melody captures the melancholy of lost chances and the yearning for a second chance. Ethan, how you recorded this remarkable song? Sure. Um, first, I had to gather all the necessary materials. Now, birch species are generally small to medium-sized trees or shrubs, mostly of northern temperate and boreal climates. Uh, birch bark can be found in most wooded areas and can be used as a natural sound dampening material, so I used it for that. And squirrels are indigenous to the Americas, Eurasia, and Africa, and were introduced by humans to Australia as well. So I used squirrel droppings to create a natural reverb effect. 
I used a Takamine acoustic guitar, Pro Tools, and an AKG 414 microphone. First, I had to make sure the birch bark, squirrel excrement, the guitar, and the microphone were clean and free of any dirt or debris before using them. Right. Next, I needed to find a suitable location for recording. I found a quiet spot in the woods near my cabin where there were no distractions or outside voices. You can also use a small room in your house if you don't have access to a natural outdoor space like mine. Once I found my secluded location, I used the birch bark to create sound dampening walls and a studio floor around the microphone. Then of course I scattered these squirrel droppings on the forest floor to create a natural reverb effect. Then it was time to start recording. I began by positioning my AKG 414 microphone in front of my Takamini acoustic guitar under a box maple tree. Of course, I made sure the microphone was positioned correctly to capture the best sound possible. I then chose to begin playing my guitar and singing my song. As I played, I listened carefully to the sound of my guitar and of my voice. I adjusted my positioning and the birch bark walls and squirrel droppings as necessary to get the best sound possible. Well, you certainly accomplished that. Once I had finished recording my song, it was time to edit it using Pro Tools. Pro Tools is a digital audio workstation developed and released by Avid Technologies, formerly DigiDesign, for Microsoft Windows and Mac OS. This software allowed me to clean up any background traffic noise or unwanted forest sounds that may have been captured during the recording process. I could also adjust the levels of my Takamini guitar and of my voice to create the best balance between the two. I used Pro Tools to add additional effects or reverb to enhance the natural sound of my special recording. I had now recorded a beautiful and unique acoustic pop song using birch bark, squirrel droppings, a Takamini acoustic guitar, Pro Tools, and an AKG 414 microphone. I took a moment to sit back and listen to my creation. I reflected on the process and the materials used to create this one-of-a-kind song, and I told myself that I just might have started a new trend in music recording. Ethan's songs are like snapshots frozen in time, capturing raw emotions that many of us can relate to. But I can't help but wonder, has he found any closure or moved beyond the pain of his past? It took years of self-reflection and solitude to come to terms with the pain of my past. The seclusion of the woods allowed me to untangle myself from the strict beliefs that once held me captive. Now I find solace in the quiet whispers of nature and the melodies that flow through me like a mountain stream, untethered from heartache. That's a beautiful transformation, Ethan. Your journey is an inspiration to those who have also experienced the weight of their past. But tell me, what advice would you give to someone who may be going through a similar struggle? I would tell them to embrace the pain, for it truly holds lessons within. Seek solace in nature. Let the world around you speak to your soul. And remember, every heartbreak, every rejection is an opportunity for growth and self-discovery. Thank you, Ethan, for sharing your remarkable story with us today on Uncharted Tales. Your words and melodies will resonate with our listeners, reminding them that even in the depths of solitude, there's always hope for healing and transformation. That's going to be hard to top. The fear is that AI is going to be far better at appealing to the largest number of people and being more colorful and interesting than the work of human beings. 
You can email me at wickedperson at gmail.com to tell me whether the AI me or the actual me was more listenable. But for what it's worth, here is the real, not programmed into a computer with silly search parameters version. Every now and then, I meet Christian women. But they're involved, or younger, or disinterested in me, or whatever. Goodness knows why. But it's nice to have a friendly acquaintanceship with Christian women who aren't trying to church me all the time. I met Joanna, who was in a committed relationship with an ex-Mormon through Ruth. We were all raised in exactly the same brethren group, though they're much younger, and live in Maine. Joanna sees a direct connection between me being single and me being shunned by my birth culture. She says if I wanted to try to date Christian women without the continual interference of Christian people and my bad reputation, I might have to move, like to New Zealand. I think when you leave the brethren and... Instead of just moving on, you share your experiences and disappointments. You definitely can gain a red letter, for sure. Um, And be perceived as someone who might be bitter or trying to cause trouble. I don't know always if there's specific... People point it out. Um, It might be the case if you're local. um, A specific person would get more of a reputation. But I think in my experience, it's more of a general attitude towards people who left. And I would add, because of that attitude in general, if you do, for example, have a podcast or write a book... Um, talking about your experiences, that would definitely put you in a higher category, you know, gain more of a reputation along those lines. She also explains that although I am definitely a bit of a special case with a brethren fatwa on me for life because of my thinking and writing, even simply having left the Plymouth Brethren is enough to cause Brethren folks to disapprove of and meddle in any Brethren folks having any social, let alone any marital, connections to me. In the context of young women or just, you know, women in general, in the Brethren or Christian groups in general, uh, particularly like evangelical or fundamentalist groups, which are the ones that I have the most um, experience with, I think the warnings can come almost as an attitude of women being inferior um, intellectually or in terms of emotional intelligence. I think a lot of that probably, you know, is rooted in the fact that, you know, Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't. But in any case, it's kind of a avuncular sort of attitude towards women or a paternal where we need to be protected psychologically um, from ideas rather than trusting that someone is able to have the truth in themselves and, you know, anything that doesn't jive with their faith, they have the strength to, you know, weed that out and listen to what you have to say, but, you know, not be affected by whatever negativity you may bring to the table, you know, as we all do. We all have failings. 
So if you adopt an attitude of, well, this person's dangerous because of their ideas, to me that seems fundamentally illogical. If you're approaching every situation or conversation with an attitude of fear, that's not faith. And it's also not helpful to other people. And I think, you know, it's almost like brethren cancel culture, really, where, you know, it's like, oh, these people are approved and these ones aren't. That's not really how reality works. And if a person is, you know, I've, I've developed a very different idea of dangerous having survived domestic abuse and violence. You know, it's one thing if a person is manipulative and trying to warp reality and the truth, um, trying to control you and showing violence. That's very different from having a conversation with a person who doesn't have any control over you um, and who might present you with ideas that you don't agree with. Well, who cares? You get that all the time in the world, and we're in the world. So to me, the idea that a person who is disenchanted with what they grew up in is dangerous, you know, I used to feel that way, but I really don't anymore. And I think, I think it's naive to think that way. And it keeps you, keeps you in the dark you know, if you're not willing to face realities and hard questions. This week's reading of Brian McLaren involved him gingerly and at length inching his way into eventually presenting a pretty simple idea. The idea that just as there are levels or stages of human development when you are growing up, there are the same things for spiritual development, which is just a part of human development and growing up anyway. And the way McLaren sees it, you buy in, and then you think and talk 100% according to the stage you're at. And for Christians, he sees groups like the one I was raised in as at the first, which is to say primitive, stage, which he calls simplicity. simplicity. Easy, simple, binary thinking. Blacks and whites, rights and wrongs, edifyings and harmfuls, seculars and sacreds. But to McLaren, based on his experience as a lifelong professional Christian, a paid believer, you find yourself outgrowing that stage, and you call that outgrowing doubt. So, McLaren finds a way to word it that sounds to his alliterating evangelical ethics positive, and he says, doubt is a doorway to newer, higher, more complex stuff. Well, doesn't that sound hopeful? I was raised in a Christian tradition with much higher standards for sounding like ideas might be coming straight from the Bible in the King James, and no childish squeamishness at all about saying something negative. So the way we'd put it is that like a seed, plucked or falling from the plant on which it was happily growing with all of the other seeds, you fall into the ground and die in a spiritual sense. And then God possibly sends the rain and possibly gives growth, and you hopefully, depending on what ground you fell on and if there are weeds and birds around, spring up in a new form, one that's able to add to the harvest. Or that, eventually, being a man, you put away childish things and pick up the tools of a man. You quit playing and start fighting and building. 
or maybe, as to Star Wars and so on, the more random, overblown, empty, and silly the latest incarnations of your fondly remembered childhood stories become, the more you get bored of it all and don't care anymore, because you yearn inside yourself for something better, something with more smart and more heart than Disney or any of them seem to be doing right now. More sense, certainly. Less spectacle. Makes sense. There's a reason why my church tradition was also purposely halted developmentally at what they called that moment when you took your first step of faith in simple, childlike trust. You weren't supposed to go beyond that point at all. You were just supposed to hold it close to your dusty, chill bosom for 60 years or so, and then die without having lived any more than was absolutely necessary. And the episode of Marty's Bayma podcast I listened to this week was about how to deal with failure as Christians, which is kind of about what to do when you put in the work and the time and God seems to stand you up despite all of your colorful, groovy, edgy, culturally relevant ideas. And it makes you doubt stuff. The guest this week, J.R. Briggs, casually presented as an aside something no brethren person would likely think of. I know I hadn't thought of it, so I was delighted to have something new to chew on. It's just this. In the Bible, Jesus predicts his own execution and also that he would come back after his death. And sure enough, he does die. And then when he comes back, he goes around reconnecting with his followers and spending kind of a debrief after-party thing with them before returning to heaven from whence he'd originally come. And the fact that he's doing this is spread around by word of mouth and many are skeptical. One disciple named Thomas, Doubting Thomas, expresses his doubt in the reality of all this, saying he'd have to touch Jesus' wounds in order to accept all this as real. So when Jesus does come to them in a room where Thomas is, Jesus asks Thomas to touch him, including his wounds, to show Thomas that it's not a trick, that Jesus is real and telling the truth as to who he is and what he went through and the fact that he's here, around, now. And it was about this that J.R. Briggs, after giggling nervously, Gen X millennial, Christian evangelical style, over his own numerous credentials, achievements, and accolades to date, presenting himself as a successful writer on failure, said something interesting, like it was obvious, that Jesus, in showing Thomas his wounds, was just like in almost every gospel story, not just saying, look, this is proof, I'm the one and only Son of God. Jesus was also demonstrating how he wanted us all to act. According to J.R. Briggs, when interacting with people who may be disbelieving about anything, be vulnerable. Show that you are real flesh and blood rather than some grinning cardboard cutout at a used car dealership or a real estate office. Show your wounds, so to speak. Show that you may think it's all a bit magical, but it's not all magic and it's not easy. All this reminds me of how while sitting with my grandmother as she was dying, one of my aunts had exactly the kind of husband who felt as the only male there who hadn't been excommunicated for satire that he should preach a lot about the wonderful testimony for God we were all being to the staff and residents of that nursing home, demonstrating that we were happy instead of sad that our mother, or in my case my grandmother, and in his case his mother-in-law, was dying. I gently told him that in my experience, what works best with people who are unlikely to believe what we do is, rather than contrast ourselves with them, instead to be vulnerable, to admit our doubt, what was hard for us, that this often enabled them to relate, to see a possible path from where they were to where we maybe were now. 
As I've related before, this resulted in my uncle taking my aunt and them leaving the bedside of her dying mother. This happened years ago. Not only is my grandmother dead, but so is the uncle in question. He was generally a very kind man to me growing up, but was, like pretty much all of my uncles, strongly disapproving of how I turned out. A man just isn't like me, and women are right to have nothing to do with me, they thought. Mind you, they're all divorced, so there's that. I'm reading a book right now that tells me that Mennonites have a special word for men like me, and it's a word that in low German is literally translated man who doesn't know how to farm. Essentially, it's a way of calling us effeminate, not real men. About scars... I've mentioned in the past how back when I was still trying out attendance at local non-brethren churches amid all of the Disney hymns and so on, I'd been a bit blindsided by the pastor singing Jesus Loves Me mid-sermon. And afterward, I'd been briefly talking to the pastor's wife and sister, that's two different people, just to be clear, and they, having been, like me, raised with those old-school hymns and having happy memories of them, unlike mine— before the move to bubblegum pop praise that they now enjoyed, said how great it was to hear that old tune again. It had been so long. Ah, the feels. I didn't say anything until they asked me if it was good for me too. And I accidentally was honest and said that mainly it just brought me back to three hours of Victorian-style church Sundays, no smiling aloud, a whole lot of spankings for squirming or not visibly paying enough attention in church when I was little, and my dad, the week right before they were asking me this question, once again forcibly trying to save his grandkids over my sister's objections by singing Jesus Loves Me and only ever Jesus Loves Me to them when soothing them or rocking them to sleep. Both women looked very uncomfortable, like I just loudly said f***ing mother in church or something, where everything is awesome theology was orthodoxy. And the pastor's wife said, those are wounds. You've got to get healing from God for those. Just like I was spiritually bleeding out, standing there in front of her decades later and had never sought medical attention for all of these wounds. These are scars, I told them. Scars are what you get once healing has long since finished happening. They toughen you up, but they do leave a mark, and they aren't pretty. This was not received at all. It was not deemed to be anointed or awesome. They knew God because he was their buddy, and they knew he didn't talk like that. Scars? Really? But how do you present the idea to regular folks that you are, despite everything, a somewhat believer in some stuff still? Well, I think that showing the wounds that you experience getting there might be part of the story sometimes. Clearly, I'm trying to do that on here. The magic word trauma doesn't explain everything, no matter how much we unthinkingly use it, but any Christian person in the Western world can tell you that no atheist has ever done half the bad stuff to you, as your own Christian community repeatedly, consistently has, and continues to do. From shoving you out of their midst so they never have to deal with you, to more or less pretending you've died, and exerting pressure on people to never associate with you or anyone who does for the rest of your life. Many of us learned about rejection from that, although they called it Christian love and demand that I forgive them for it. Well, I have, long ago, in the past. But this doesn't mean I don't notice this kind of thing going on still, hurting people I know whose hearts are not yet like mine, hardened into big rocks as to rejection, knowing that there are truckloads more of it on the way and miles of it to go before they sleep. When you're young and single, 
you can get a real flinch response to possible rejection. Once you're middle-aged and single, it's not just rejection anymore, it's full-on abandonment. You stop worrying about being rejected by women you may like and start feeling like rather than having been left in an alley in a cardboard box by the mother who is supposed to love you, more like you've been abandoned by the human race when it comes to being anything but alone all the time. It's a very different feeling. Old people know about fear of abandonment. Many have been put against their will into institutions and feel like they've been abandoned there. The world has moved on. They're no longer relevant. It's like that if you're a middle-aged bachelor too sometimes, only you have to launder your own bedding and make your own jello. So you need to deal with that solitude. Being on the radar, on the awareness and schedules of other people is really important to us, maybe too important. We can easily lose sight of the importance of being aware of ourselves, of scheduling time to do things that are for us. This can come from placing not enough importance on our own awareness, attention, and time. I've been noticing over and over again in fiction of all kinds lately, movies and novels and the rest, the underlying message that if you have everything in the world but love, then you have nothing. Good thing matrimonial love isn't the only sort of love there is for us. Oh, you may want to sit down for the rest of your life at that huge, never-ending marital meal of sometimes too close for comfort or not at all what you ordered human connections, and it seems to have served, oh, about half of the people out there relatively well to at least some degree, but if human connection is important and you've not married, then what? I have, on occasion, found myself spending a lot of time with other of society's rejects, other unmarried and not in any danger of getting married guys. There are a whole lot of lonely old men out there who've been alone for most of their lives and who know that they are only going to get a loner from here. But I've hung out with a bunch of them, and there has been comfort and value there for all of us. Even with my male friends, I've spent a life valuing my friends far more than they valued me, given how long the friendships have lasted. Normally, once a woman comes along, the guys hit the hills. Marital woes before bros. But eventually, I realized that I didn't have to live out the rest of my days in the bargain bin, the rejects pile, the penalty box, the back alley dumpster. I could focus more broadly on making a series of casual, light, good human connections each day. No obligations to connect deeply with every single person who approached me or whom I interacted with. There are other kinds of friends besides bestest friends. But connecting to anyone who is around, online or off, has increasingly become important for me seeking conversations for their own sake. In the various iterations of the Faust myth, Faust has the supernatural means to get wealth and power, but he's not content until he also has love, which doesn't come from the devil, even in those stories. The devil can give Faust the power to summon an AI-generated Helen of Troy naked, so of course Faust does that, but it can't connect him and keep him united in a healthy, lifelong way with a woman. That's the purview of luck, Mother Nature, or God, depending on your religion, I mean, worldview. Whatever you look to to maintain your soul, I mean, your identity, your I mean, your political membership. I have no supernatural means to get wealth and power, and so I don't have those things. My connection to God has not furnished any long-term healthy connection to a woman who is intimately united to me for the long haul. So the pragmatic solution to that is to enjoy whatever I do have 
and try to be grateful for it and not to overreach and try to cheat to get wealth, power, or connections to women in any dishonest, exploitive, or unsavory way. Speaking of unsavory ways to pursue things, in the obscure Australian movie The Nostradamus Kid, set during the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 60s, the main character's Seventh-day Adventist community, which reminded me terribly much of my Plymouth Brethren community back when I saw this movie, expects life on Earth to be over in the next day or so due to the rapture and impending nuclear war and biblical prophecy and stuff like that. And the teenage main character's straight-laced friend makes this incredibly wrong and revealing comment at a Mormon retreat for young people. Well, it's our last night on Earth. How do you reckon we ought to spend it? Let's rape all the women. What? Let's rape all the women. All of them? And that doesn't happen. Because that's not what they really want and because the subjects of their lecherous impulses are involved in a late-night prayer meeting. What they really want is to live long lives with the world not ending, with a good woman at their side all the way. And in the case of the straight-laced friend with the unsavory suggestion, and not the main character of the movie, when the world fails to end, that's exactly what happens. He marries the Seventh-day Adventist girl he'd had his rapacious eye on. That'll teach him for making creepy comments. His buddy has trouble letting go of a brief fling with a young Miranda Otto, who then went on to play sword-wheeling badass Eowyn in Lord of the Rings, as envisioned by Tolkien, rather than other people, much imitated, never matched. I am no man. Every female character in Tolkien can't be Eowyn. So... I think a logical conclusion is that being able to put a car repair on Visa is not as good as being wealthy, but it's better than nothing, and you can enjoy it or stress over it and feel like, for some reason, you deserve more. Being someone with a job that allows you to decide how things are going to go in your tiny kingdom there is not as good as being powerful in the world at large, but it's better than nothing, and you can enjoy it or stress over it and feel like, for some reason, you deserve more. Having a lot of good conversations with female friends and walking through a world filled with lovely young women that God made is not as good as a passionate, successful marriage to one, but it's better than nothing, and you can enjoy it or stress over it and feel like, for some reason, you deserve more. Well, I don't deserve more. I don't deserve anything. My upbringing taught me that, and I think they were right about it. Love isn't about people deserving things. But what they didn't teach me was to therefore not stress over what I hadn't achieved and certainly not to enjoy what I had. They didn't teach me gratitude. Not really. But thank you, fundamentalist upbringing. I've been dumped by women who said it was because they didn't think they deserved someone like me. And that sounded like empty flattery until I noticed who they ended up with, who they thought they did deserve. So all in all, things could have been a lot worse. On Hoping Lately, I've been finding myself feeling cheerful. Now, that's just weird, so I thought it bore some consideration. On a whim, a couple of months ago, I bought some magnesium supplement pills to go with the vitamin D ones that vampires like me need to take daily to make up for the lack of sunlight we're getting and to help with MS not coming back to nibble on my spinal cord. Ironically, low vitamin D goes along with having MS, and high vitamin D helps with staving off the effects of MS. 
and you naturally get vitamin D from being in the sun here in Canada. But increasing one's body temperature, for example, by being in a sauna or out in the sun, makes MS symptoms worse. Now, I'd seen a totally legit, make-sense-level science TED Talk in which a guy said magnesium was part of him treating depression. And I'm enjoying it for the placebo effect alone. I also think I started to figure out some of this lately. Instead of lying around, not creating, not doing anything much because you're waiting to feel hopeful or energetic or inspired or optimistic, you can simply develop the habit of trying things, doing stuff. So you try something to see what will happen, and very often you're surprised to find that once you have started to do something other than a whole lot of nothing, you feel optimistic, inspired, hopeful. One of the worst things for me about all the COVID sanctions was that they ingrained far more deeply than had been already ingrained in me the years-long habit of inaction, of not doing things, of staying in the house, of being alone, of waiting around to feel like doing something before acting. So for me, part of recovering from the slough of despond that I was mired in during and long after COVID sanctions is me starting to unthinkingly reach out to other people and plan to do things with them, even things that require leaving my house, sometimes even initiating and suggesting said things without worrying about possible rejection. I've been thinking a lot lately about habits, and the one thing that COVID undeniably did was change all of our habits. Teaching school is seeing kids whose habits are worse than ever. As to depression, dumbing it down to an obscene level, a lot of it is simply about what you expect your week to be. During COVID, I was extremely aware of getting older every day and the mysterious ailments and health problems that can be waiting around any corner to blindside you at that age. And I was aware that in all likelihood, the world being on hold and us being shut up in our homes, this was going to be yet another week alone in which nothing happened. It's depressing. But now... And only now, like I said, I realize that I've generally been more cheerful. Part of it is how sunshiny it looks outside my window, how if I go outside, I am not going to immediately start freezing to death, and therefore how easy it is to remain comfortable in terms of temperature, but also generally having developed the expectation that I'm going to be doing things this week. Father Christmas has been and gone because Aslan is finally on the move again. Now I have a bunch of things, some of which involve other people, that I can expect to probably be doing. And even if they go poorly, you can't say I'm not doing stuff. Ironically, for at least 10 years leading up to COVID, I mostly lay on the couch and binged nerd property television and movies. Superhero stuff, science fiction stuff, horror stuff, that kind of stuff. My name is Oliver Queen. For five years I was stranded on an island with only one goal survive. Oliver Queen is alive. My name is Barry Allen, and I am the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. When I was a child, my planet Krypton was dying. I was sent to Earth to protect my cousin.
hunting people, hunting things. Family business. Our whole lives been searching for this dance. Yes. You're probably wondering how a nice boy like Norman Bates could get himself into such a precarious situation. If it's all seeming a little hazy, let's rewind to the beginning and let me catch you up. Leading up to COVID, I picked up on people on YouTube who were hate-watching these properties, as the properties increasingly started to seem more and more childish. And it's not like these guys weren't intelligent and funny, nor that I disagreed with their various amusing criticisms of the forms of entertainment that increasingly seemed to be aimed at an audience that was very much not me after a good couple of decades in which everything on TV and at the movies had seemed designed specifically to please people who were just like me. And I was into all this hate-watching, more than spending time on watching the actual things they were hate-watching for their channels... Anyway, I'm not here to talk about them. I'm here to give you a fair, no-bullshit assessment of this movie. So here it is. The Eternals is a shit film. A jumbled, unfocused, incoherent, overblown mess of a screenplay that tries to juggle too many characters, too many half-baked ideas, and too many world-shattering events, lacking the strong direction needed to bring such an epic story to life. It's tonally, logically, and ethically bonkers, veering wildly between heavy drama and goofy humour, and constantly ignoring its own rules and principles. It was an absolute chore to get through, and honestly left me questioning what the f*** is going on behind the scenes at Marvel. Palpatine is alive again, and he sent out a transmission to everybody. Oh, Palpatine is back? How is that possible? Well, the dark side is a pathway to many abilities some would consider unnatural. Oh, very vague. What does that mean? It means get all the way off my back about this and don't bring it up again. Oh, okay, let me get off of that thing. So it turns out he was pulling the strings this whole time, like he created Snoke. Seriously? Yep, we just, we didn't see him because he was in a basement with strobe lights. It's so strange that we never hinted at this at all whatsoever in any way. Yeah, uh uh-huh, pretty crazy, but this was... This was always the plan. Was it, though? I mean, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't start a trilogy without a roadmap, you know? I wouldn't, I didn't do that. Well, okay, then. So what happens in this thing? Well, you know how in The Last Jedi we found out that Rey's parents are nobody? Right, yeah, between that and the broom kid, it seemed like maybe we were going for, like, a hopeful message, like the Force can be with anyone, you don't have to be related Well, to... it turns out that Rey is Palpatine's granddaughter. Oh, she is? Yeah, 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 pretty cool, right? So that means that Palpatine has gotten... You know, intimate? Oh my god, yeah, no, I guess it does. Oh no. Oh no, 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 no. Oh, I'm picturing it. So am I, and I hate it. Do it. Oh, he for sure said that. This lifelong Star Wars fan didn't bother pirating, let alone buying movie tickets, to go and see Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. I've still never seen it. I just don't care enough. If I did watch it, it would be only me hate-watching it. All the new TV superhero stuff, the new Doctor Who, the new Star Trek... All of it, I just stop bothering with. It's further proof that the MCU is pretty much a spent force creatively, drifting without a sense of purpose or direction, and lurching from one disastrous movie to another. It's been a fun ten years, but the fun's very much over now, and maybe it's time to move on to something more entertaining. Konstantin Kissin criticizes the modern world for resulting in lives like mine, which he calls disconnected and disembodied. Obviously, it's not ideal for me to spend all of my time on my phone, not connected to other people, vicariously living the lives and struggling through the struggles of colorful fictional characters in grim fictional worlds with all the physical activity and genuinely social interaction in a day of a brain in a jar. You can enjoy stories because they help you think about and explore real life or because they remove you from that. 
There are real limits to how much it's good to be creating an imagined person I then pretend I am, playing a role, performing an avatar, identity, or character, mostly online. Interacting with people and briefing them as to who I am imagining myself to be today, rather than negotiating in real time in the real world who I can find it feasible to be to and with others. There's a difference between being yourself and being an imagined person. COVID kind of pushed that existence to a ludicrous level, and though we certainly haven't put the world back the way it was or even close, I think the point has been made. Disconnected and disembodied is not a good way to live. It was weird to watch myself lose interest in trying out very many more new forms of entertainment, too. I found I was entirely forgetting to watch new nerdy thing after new nerdy thing, and I kind of doubled down on learning how to make podcasts and albums and movies and things like that, how to record and mix stuff better, how to write stories, how story structure works. I watched a lot of documentaries during COVID. I think it was a form of growing up, finally. This learning about how stuff was made was something I was very into leading into COVID. And then during COVID, when you'd think I'd be obsessively binging nerd TV and movies, I just wasn't. It seemed like everything was dying or going all screwy, including all that stuff. The stuff that used to be known and familiar, it all wore strange faces. I just didn't want to see it, and I realized I needed to make my own stuff more. I hadn't been doing music since MS either. I hadn't been doing very much music for years before MS, actually. This is why doing 60-plus episodes of podcasts with a larger number of songs recorded than even that seemed to really make a difference for me, pointed me in a new, good direction. Sure, it's not the 90s, and I'm not going to get signed by a label who's going to fund three huge studio albums with big concert tours to accompany them. So, I'm not going to be famous. And everybody says... But if you're not going to be making millions of dollars, you can't really justify spending the time and money doing these creative things that make us feel alive. This is what everybody says. Why bother with it? And you know what? F*** everybody. It's like Neil Gaiman says. You know, you're a writer if you can't stop writing stuff. The challenge for me is never trying to find something to say, obviously. The challenge for me always is working out exactly how I want to say it, how to try to make it interesting to anyone other than me. Paintings, poems, songs, recordings, performances, videos, podcasts, conversations, lessons, whatever. All of that. Trying it all out, trying to see how it works and how best to do it. I guess when you're young, you might be writing songs or poems or painting paintings with some dream that it's going to get you girls or it's going to make you money or make you famous or interesting or something. Once you're right in the middle of middle middle age, though, you know that none of that is happening. So if you are going to do that stuff when most people have long since quit doing it, you're going to have to do it for very other reasons, mostly because it's in you to do, because you're like that. What am I like? I love telling people about stuff. I love telling stories. To the untrained ear, it seems like I just like talking about myself and complaining all the time. But actually, if you listen really closely, I am just as happy telling you about Jason and the Argonauts or the Odyssey or Beowulf or Chaucer or Shakespeare as I am talking about me and my church. But I also have no interest at all in pretending that elevating my study of these subjects far beyond what the average person would ever be interested in or easily able to follow is going to make me happy. I have no interest at all in writing new papers which purport to be doing vital, precious scholarly work. So I'm looking for things to do. I think I should put my audiobook of I Was a Teenage Pharisee, which in many ways functioned as practice for this podcast, on Spotify, as if it were a podcast. 
And my friend Neil Foster McPhail writes mythology stories that I use in my classroom, but has never had an audiobook of his stuff made, being too local and small-time to be able to afford anything like that. Well, I have the skills, so if he's interested, I think I should put some of his stories on Spotify as audiobooks slash podcasts. What do you say, Neil? All of that stuff is actually much easier for me than making episodes of The Wicked Podcast. But like I said, I haven't entirely given up on the idea of making another season of The Wicked Podcast at some point either. So one thing I learned during COVID is I have to be making and doing a bunch of stuff. If I don't do that, I'm just going to be sitting looking at my phone screen and waiting to die. Today, though, stuff happened. It was a sunny Sunday, and I dictated that last stuff about on hoping into my phone as I drove an hour and a half to my friend Peter's place. Here was the intended course of the day's events. I was going to take my broken fireplace insert ventilation fan housing and a new fan I picked up on eBay for $50 instead of $500 as a seller said he hadn't been able to test it to see if it worked to Peter's house. Peter is an engineer, so we were going to test it and start installing it in the old housing if it worked. And my electricity goes out from time to time if there's a bit too much snow or a bit too much wind. And I've been intending to buy a gas-powered generator at some point. And Peter found an insanely good deal on one, picked it up for me without asking, assuming that I would buy it. And so we were going to see if it worked. Peter asked me to pick him up some high-end generator fuel designed to store in a generator that, in the case of his own, wouldn't likely get much use, and in mine, which would likely get used two or three times a year for a day here or there. Like I say, when there's too much snow or too much wind. And then on my way back home, I was planning on stopping by and letting Mom pick out some books on Amazon for her 80th birthday, having garnered some author suggestions from ladies at work. And I was going to shovel the dirt back over their septic tank lid from where it got pumped the other week. So here's what really happened. I drove my strong, healthy car in the sun to Peter's house an hour and a half away with a sunny view of Morrisburg, New York, visible from across the St. Lawrence. Peter hooked up the new fan, and it worked. So he set about removing the broken fan from the housing and then putting the new one in. I did a pretty good job of dismantling the pop rivet assembled unit, and Peter gave me a head start on remantling it with the new one. At this point, the neighbor came over, and Peter had promised to take her teenage son on a bike ride on the biking trails that go along the St. Lawrence on this warm day, so Peter gave me my generator, with me resolving to pay him back, and getting into my car, you know, the one whose fuel pump had quit last December when I was getting winter tires put on, so they replaced the fuel pump, and then it sat for the winter, and then when it was in getting its brakes unseized the other week, they told me that the new fuel pump had failed, so I'd needed a new new one, and then they said, just kidding, the fuel pump is working now, not sure what was happening there. It'll be fine. And sent me on my merry way, that car? Well, as Peter bid farewell to me and my car didn't start, we realized that the unreplaced new last December fuel pump really did seem to have failed in earnest, stranding me an hour and a half from home in the sun with no way of getting home and then into school the next day for a professional activity day about diversity, equity, and inclusion and shit. So Peter took the neighbor's son, who is back from a year at university where he's studying to be a flautist at the professional level, on a sun-drenched, breezy tour of the biking trails, and I sat on his couch and scoured YouTube, learning a whole lot more about how fuel pumps and things in 2010 Dodge Chargers tend to fail. At Ram, you better light and just cut off on you. There's Dodge Chargers, Chrysler 300s, Dodge Magnums, um, the Challengers. 
Um, it's usually around the 06 to 09 models. When Peter came back hours later, hoping the beast had just intermittently started up again for me, the way it had at the mechanics, he found that it hadn't, and so we had a look. The fuel relay and fuses are, of course, in the trunk under the carpet, so Peter put a multi-tester on all of those and determined that none of that was doing anything bad. Then we looked under the hood, and everything seemed fine there, too. Then I pulled the rear seats out so we could see the fuel pump back there, and Peter tested it and even whacked it lightly with a rubber mallet to see if he could jog it into life to send me on my way. No dice. Everything was working but the fuel pump, which was dead as a corpse's left testicle. So I used CAA, that's AAA for Canadians, for the first time. I'm used to, when dealing with car problems, to be dealing with dudes. I'm used to a pretty concise, efficient mode of communication. Yeah. Hi, uh, my car's broken down, so I need a tow. What's the vehicle? It's a 2010 Dodge Charger. Not starting? Nope. Okay, give me the address and we'll try to send a guy for it in the next few hours or so. But things are different now. The world is a kinder, gentler, more inclusive space. After some time spent on hold in a menu system that asked me to press 1 for front-wheel drive and 2 for rear-wheel drive, press 1 for automatic transmission and 2 for manual transmission, press 1 for standard suspension and 2 for modified suspension, it went more like this. Thank you for making a rescue request with CAA. What is your emergency? Is this the menu system still, or a person? My name is Cheryl. How may I assist you? My car has broken down. Oh, no. I'm so sorry that's happened to you. Are you somewhere safe? Yes, I'm in a friend's driveway. Perfect. Again, I'm sorry about the day you're having. Um, thanks? Oh, you're very welcome. What can we do to help? Could you tow my car to a garage in the next town over? Oh, certainly. We'd be glad to do that for you. Our system indicates it's a Dodge Charger with rear-wheel drive, automatic transmission, and unmodified suspension? Yes. Now, you mentioned a friend's driveway. Yes. Do you feel comfortable telling me the address where your vehicle is right now? And so on. It was like you were getting mothering in a tow at the same time from a mothering robot. Unfamiliar, not entirely unpleasant either. I had a delightfully chatty tow truck driver who I thought sounded so much like a blend of McMurray from Letterkenny and Bubbles from Trailer Park Boys that I stealth recorded him while messing around with my phone to share with you what folks around here tend to talk like. I had him tow me 30 minutes drive back to my parents' house. Now, my parents live next to a garage run by Mark, a guy who, like Peter, I went to high school with. So we dumped the car there with a note tied to the keys dumped in the mail slot, and I went to visit my folks. I picked out books from Amazon with Mom, ate my first real meal of the day at 8 p.m., decided that the mosquitoes would add further welts to my already welty body if I tried shoveling the dirt back over the septic tank lids out there in the dusky mosquito-filled air, Resolved that I could do it when I returned for the fixed car, borrowed my parents' only extremely elderly car, and went home. And their car didn't break down on the way, which was a bonus. Now, I'd been seeing the day as disastrous. 
But Peter, being of a more sanguine nature, said it was one failure and a whole bunch of successes. You know what they say? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Aye. As the crucified Eric Idle character from Life of Brian sings, always look on the bright side of life, I guess. As you know, I don't have a car right now, so I don't think I'll be able to make the activities my employer has planned for us tomorrow. I'll have to wait until I have my own car back rather than my parents' rickety one that I don't want to drive any more than absolutely necessary. My Ford SUV seems to have only seven of eight cylinders firing and a large gap in its exhaust system. I told Evan, voice to text, that I had a giant pile of essays to grade tomorrow anyway, and voice to text informed Evan for me that I had a giant pile of asses to grade tomorrow. It's essays, but that's the plan. Essays. And recording this, with some pretty inflamed mosquito bite welts. So, plans to do stuff. Actually, trying to do stuff. Ten out of ten, would recommend. That being said, today, the next day... As inequitable and undiverse a soul as ever, I'm planning to drive to my parents' town to rent a car so my parents have one, and I can get into actual school to actually teach actual students tomorrow, while I wait for Hank's tire to get back to me about the possible warranty of the non-fuel-pumping fuel pump and whether they want me to have the car towed from Miller's to Hank's or not. Fun times. Well, as Robbie Burns said, The best laid plans of mice and men... Gang glee, which means that no matter what you decide to plan, it may very well go sideways, and you'll just have to deal with that. You know, I'm starting to suspect that I'm more able to remain cheerful throughout a bunch of bad stuff going on than I am through a bunch of nothing going on, and definitely than I am through some kind of noisy, crowded public celebration. Right now, I'm waiting to see about my ailing car and feeling relatively cheerful. 24 hours later... Turns out it's impossible to rent a car around here right now without three or four days' notice. Hank's Tire in Smith Falls actually wants me to have my car towed from Miller's in Smith Falls to Hank's Tire in Carlton Place, the next town over where the work was originally done, rather than across town to Hank's Tire in Smith Falls. 24 hours later, Hank's Tire in Carlton Place says they want me to leave my car at Hank's Tire in Smith Falls because the lods at Hank's Tire in Smith Falls sure can deal with it, they say. 24 hours later, I phoned a towing service to have my car towed and waited next door at my folks and made a sandwich. Same service, but with a mail operator and a very mail script. Information only, facts, short and to the point. No inquiring after my feelings. A promise that the tow truck driver would text me when he was five minutes out so I could make sure I was with the vehicle when he arrived, at which time I was to show him my CAA card and photo ID and put the vehicle in neutral for him and follow him to the garage across town. The best laid plans of mice and men, though. I got no text and went next door to find my car already towed away. So I drove my folks' car over to the second garage right quick and caught him just before he, having dropped my car there, drove away. I tried to apologize for not having been there, and he said, I gave him the key, and drove away. He sounded like this character Frankie from the Godfather movies. I don't know nothing about that. Oh... I was in the olive oil business with his father, but that was a long time ago, that's all.
The garage gave me a firm promise of definitely fixing my car upon some unspecified day, getting guys from the Carlton Place garage to drive over if necessary. Although they didn't inquire after my feelings, they made sympathy faces about my predicament, which is always nice. Twenty-four hours later, a snake, looking to be perhaps four or five feet long, at least to my eyes, appeared on my basement motion-activated laundry room camera at four in the morning, flailing around trying not to fall out of the rafters onto my laundry room floor. But, after work, I met up with three guys from sword class who I hadn't seen since COVID and practiced saber in a park with them after work. Well, I say three guys, but one has recently transitioned, so one of us was wearing a pink miniskirt and makeup and was still twice my size and a whole lot better than me at saber. And practicing saber, it turns out, is more like practicing dancing than one would expect. Prolonged eye contact while circling around one another, moving carefully in step, only separated by a pair of steel blades. It was amazing to see all of them again and check and see that I retained some rudimentary saber skills and to get some exercise. 24 hours later, upon calling Hank's tire at the end of the week, I was told that they don't think it's a fuel pump problem in my car at all and will be keeping it until the following week as kind of a recreational experiment of theirs to pick away at now and then just to pass the time. So finishing my work week, planning to keep my parents' rickety car for the weekend and look into renting a car for the following week and drop by my folks Saturday to help mom with errands, I was fairly perturbed to hear, driving back up my road on the way to my place, Part of the exhaust system from my parents' car come mostly unattached and hang below the vehicle, the catalytic converter actually scraping on the lane as I drove, sounding like a small aircraft as I went. 24 hours later, called CAA to have my parents' ailing car towed back to Miller's, the garage beside them in Smith Falls, and dealt on the phone with a woman who shattered my archaic generalizations delightfully, being quiet, calm, and to the point. We got the job done with no attempts made to massage or soothe or inquire after my feelings, which are just fine, thank you! And here, three or four towns over, in my own driveway, I was reunited with Mr. I gave him the keys! who managed just fine, first walking down my driveway to make sure he'd have room enough to back his enormous truck around to cart off the little Toyota Camry, and he gave me all the inside gossip of the local tow truck drivers, including that the guy I usually use is no longer affiliated with CAA, having walked into the main CAA office and told them they could shove their local towing contract up their asses, and is currently working independently. Looks like, having pumped up a flat tire, I will be driving the old Ford into work Monday, which is sheer folly, I can tell you. But that is the plan. Apparently it's a contest to see how many cars I can break. I live alone, all by myself, overflowing garbage, and empty shelves, more beer than fruit, and I'm out of cheese. But what the hell, I got nobody else to please, except myself. And now, finally, on to the song. This one was recorded reasonably recently, as in about a decade ago, on my mostly new equipment. I'd started with the usual wobbly rough track done on my old equipment while writing it. I came back home, ran up the stairs, and I sang three songs for a girl who wasn't there. Lay on the couch, 
Well, I live alone. I live alone. I live and built on that. As I said, I played drums on this one, which should never happen. One great thing is that I didn't need to play bass on this one, as Tyler, who I'd been in a band with, consented to play bass for me, and Tyler is much better than I am at simple, feelful bass. This is relatively recent stuff, with me working then about the way I do now, so there was almost nothing left to do to it. I tinkered with the mix to make it a little less muddy, tightened up the timing on some bits, and added thigh slap and actual handmade hand claps to try to add more catchiness. For best results, wear shorts. I supported the main vocal with a pair of vocal doubling takes. I live alone, except for my cat. He pees on my bed. Imagine that when I'm asleep. And added a few more harmony vocals to one section of the already fairly harmony vocal rich song, redoing some bits that sounded a bit off. I live alone. Except for my cat, my pees on my bed. Imagine that when I'm asleep, then he cuts free. That's why I change. All in all, I was worried I might add too much to this one. I'll let you be the judge of whether I did. came back home, ran up the stairs, and I sang three songs for a girl who wasn't there. Lay on the couch, which I had off to my home. What's that you say? Well, I live alone. I live alone. I live alone. Overflowing garbage and empty shelves, more beer than fruit, and I'm out of cheese. But what the hell? I got nobody else to please except myself. I live alone with no one there, and so my sink. Up with human hair, my toilet's gray, my bathtub too. I'll clean them when I got nothing better to do. I live alone. 
Except for my cat He pees on my bed Imagine that When I'm asleep Then he cuts free That's why I change My sheets so frequently